and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, go ahead, folks, and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you turn there, have you, I want to ask you a question. Have you heard of Maddie and Tay, a country music duo popular a few years back? And uh, they wrote a clever song once lamenting the objectification of women in country music. Well, I won't sing it, but here's a little bit of how it goes. Being the girl in a country song, how in the world did it go so wrong? Like all we're good for is looking good for you and your friends on the weekend, nothing more. We used to get a little respect. Now we're lucky if we even get to climb up in your truck, keep our mouth shut and ride along and be the girl in a country song. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, many Christian women were among those who historically fought for women's rights, which was very needed and still is in many places around the world today. There was a time when women couldn't vote or even own a credit card without their husband's approval, and I'm glad those things changed. But the movement itself, for women's rights, in America at least, uh, was hijacked by godless people promoting sexual promiscuity under the guise of liberation. And that part of the movement for rights that was different than some of the early Christian women that fought so hard for the right to vote, Susan B. Anthony and others, uh, the right to vote, uh, you know, that part of the movement that hijacked and made it about sexual liberation, that has been a degradation of women in pop culture and a loss of the beautiful differences that are inherent uh, in male and female. And the confusion is everywhere. Because of that bias, the amazing words that we're about to read are rejected on their first reading by a cynical world, completely missing how revolutionary and transformative they were when spoken and how desperately they're needed today. In today's passage, we're going to see the Apostle Peter go over the God-given roles of Christian husbands and wives writing words that changed the world. So here it is, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some of them do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Verse 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. The heart person. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much 
for these words of the Apostle Peter and the words like these from the Apostle Paul. Peter was married, Paul was not, but both were writing under the inspiration of you, God the Holy Spirit, and you directed them and led them to include words about the roles and relationships uh, that we have in our lives. And we're thankful that they did, Lord God. We're thankful for these words here and in places like Ephesians that tell us about roles and responsibilities for husbands and wives in the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you so much that you don't just look on outward things. You look on the inward things. You look at the heart person. You look at inside beauty and that should be foundational for anybody that wants to shine for you, that can glow because they've spent time with you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, Lord, you will bless us and guide us and help us to be the husbands and wives that you have for us to be. For all those who are single, Lord, and who one day uh, may be married, Lord, we pray that even now we'd be working on character traits, characteristics of uh, godliness, the fruit of the Spirit. And Lord, that those would be exemplified in all of our relationships, whether single or married, God. We pray that uh, when you look at the heart person inside each of us, you would see a heart seeking after you there. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, let's start this exposition by seeing a word that's in both verse 1 and verse 7. The New King James has it translated as likewise. Um, and it's in, again, it's in verse 1 and verse 7. Others have it, other translations have it as in the same way or correspondingly. That little word, omiosis, links the passage with chapter 2, verse 13, where he said, Be subject to every human institution because of the Lord, or for the Lord's sake, some translations read. So Peter has already spoken in this section of 1 Peter about our God-given responsibilities as citizens, citizens toward our country's leaders, uh, and uh, responsibilities as workers toward bosses, masters, and servants. Now he goes into the family and gives the basic God-given responsibilities of wives and husbands. Now some may wonder why Peter gives six verses for the wives and only one for the husbands. Now it's probably the Holy Spirit's way of complementing Ephesians 5, where Paul gave only three verses for the wives and eight for the husbands, or nine verses each when you take the two passages together. So how about that? The Holy Spirit knew somebody somewhere at some time would be keeping track, and so when you put together Ephesians 5 and you put together 1 Peter 3 on the roles and responsibilities of wives and husbands, you get nine verses for each. That's pretty cool. Well, first of all, let's look at the God-given responsibilities of Christian wives. So our first fill in the blank is going with her husband as he leads. Verse 1 again says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Submit yourselves to your own husbands. Not every man, your husband. Now in Ephesians 5, Paul also called for submission, referring to the headship of the male. And so let's turn back to Ephesians 5, and let's make sure we get something that's very key. So we're turning over to Ephesians 5, and we're looking at verses 21 through 24. In verse 21, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So there's a mutual submission in the body of Christ 
within all these different roles, husbands and wives, parents and children, workers and bosses, we're submitting to one another in the fear of God. In other words, our ultimate authority is Christ. And that reminds us of uh, for the Lord's sake that we see in 1 Peter, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And so we see both of these calling for the submission of the wife to the husband with Paul saying a little bit more in Ephesians about the concept of headship. And it's all clearly in both passages under a mutual submission that comes through the only uh, uh, absolute authority in our lives, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're to go, uh, she's to go with her husband as he leads. So there's a mutual submission to each other under the Lordship of Christ as a team. But to function correctly, every team needs a leader. Husband and wives are a team, and the husband is the captain. Now, let's think about this practically. We've done a little bit in, these, in the last weeks also as we go back and forth to this key concept of submission. And don't turn it into a dirty word, but understand it, it, what it means and what it doesn't mean. But to function correctly, every team needs a leader. Husband and wives are a team, and the husband is the captain. Think about this practically. Submission doesn't have to happen in the 99%, hopefully for most couples, the 99% of time a husband and wife are agreed. A healthy couple will talk things out. And many times one will see the wisdom of what the other says. But there are times that after talking things out, there's still an impasse. At those times, the wife is to graciously follow her husband's leadership. Uh, let me read you something from C.S. Lewis, A Mere Christianity, his chapter on Christian marriage, and, and this is so good. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. The need for some head follows from the idea that marriage is permanent. Of course, as long as the husband and wife are agreed, no question of a head need arise. And we may hope that this will be the normal state of affairs in a Christian marriage. But when there's a real disagreement, what is to happen? Talk it over, of course, but I'm assuming they have done that and still failed to reach agreement. What do they do next? They cannot decide by a majority vote, for in a council of two there can be no majority. Surely only one or other of two things can happen. They must separate and go their own ways, or else one or other of them must have a casting vote. That's Old English way of saying a deciding vote. If marriage is permanent, one or other party must, in the last resort, have the power of deciding the family policy. You cannot have a permanent association without a constitution. Again, C.S. Lewis from his chapter on Christian marriage in Mere Christianity. And, and you know, that has meant so much to me over the years, uh, this teaching. And let me tell you what that has looked like practically for Elizabeth and I in our years of marriage. Uh, we have always tried to talk about decisions that needed to be made, and most of the time we've been in agreement. But there have been those times, let's say about 10 of them, when I thought we should do one thing and Elizabeth thought we should do another. And so uh, in those times, Elizabeth has graciously followed my leadership. She has said, well, Danny, you're the head of our home, and so we're at an impasse here. Let's do what you think we should do. And in those situations, we have. Now, let me be honest with you. About half those times, we should have done what Elizabeth said, and about half the times I was on to the right track. Uh, to her credit, and uh, I get a little teary-eyed when I say this. To her credit, Elizabeth has never once, not once, uh, brought up, boy, you blew it, 
and we should have done what I thought. Um, she understood the situation. The decision needed to be made. I thought one thing, she thought another. We did, with what, we did what I thought we should do. And of course, we've learned during those times, and sometimes another decision's come up like it, and I said, well, we need to do what Elizabeth had thought we should do in this situation. That's leadership. That's being the casting vote. It puts a lot of pressure on the husband's shoulders. puts a lot of pressure on the wife's shoulders. It's hard. Um, and yet this is part of a teamwork, the same way when I was a soccer team and the captain, you know, there were some on-field decisions I made. Of course, the coach is the leader of the team. He's on the sideline. God is our leader. He's in heaven. Uh, but there's some on-the-field decisions sometimes to be made. And it looks very bad on a team when people are arguing with their captain. Uh, he is the one who is to decide things when players are deciding who to take the free kick and stuff like that. And uh, he does what the coach told him to do and uh, led him to do, and he goes out there and makes those decisions. Well, for the sake of an order in any institution, there must be headship. In marriage, that headship has been given to the husband. God made it clear, gave us the ground rules. And this is uh, Vernon McGee saying this, For the sake of order in any situation, there must be headship. In marriage, that headship has been given to the husband. The better word, because it means more, is respond. Respond to this man. The Christian wife is to respond to her husband's leadership. She's to go with her husband's leadership. Well, she's to go, and the second thing is from verses, uh, the end of verse 1 all through verse 4 is she is growing and glowing in her relationship with Christ. And so it says that even if some do not obey the word, your husbands, that is, wives, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So he says to wives, don't let your adornment be outward, merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So, not only does she go with her husband's leadership, she is growing in her relationship with Christ, and because of that, she's glowing in her relationship with Christ. So just as many slaves in the Roman Empire had become believers, many women had become Christians also. And perhaps some of these believing women were wondering if they could stay with their non-Christian husbands now. Peter says, hey, don't leave them. Don't preach to them, but live out your faith before them. Give them the life-giving encouragement they don't get anywhere else. You know, back in Ephesians, he says, wives, uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he says, wives, see to that you obey your husbands, that you respect your husbands. The word is respect. And um, I like to think of that word respect as respond, encourage. And when a wife encourages her husband uh, after work at any time as he leads the home, it is like oxygen to his souls. And when he cherishes her and nourishes her and loves her the way Christ loved the church, it's like oxygen to her. Um, now these husbands, they don't know what to do. Um, Christianity was new and lots of people were speaking against it. Maybe their other non-Christian friends were critical of the Christians. These husbands needed to see the faith lived out in their wives. So the wife's become a Christian, the husband hasn't. And they've got friends saying, your wife's a Christian, let's turn her in and get her killed, you know, in these waves of persecution. And so Peter calls for her to live out her faith in such a way that she's drawing her husband toward the faith, not pushing him away from it. Uh, Christian wives, before you witness with your lips to your husband, witness with your lives. Let them see your purity. Let them see what it looks like when a woman fears God. And I think about in the early church how they would remark about how 
how remarkable uh, you, the, your Christian women were. You know, they, they, even pagan uh, men and women were looking and saying, boy, those Christian women, they have something to live for. They uh, practice good deeds. They're meeting needs. They're just lovers of God and lovers of people. They're the best citizens we've got. Of course, we must remember that God comes first for this woman, so submission will not mean joining her husband in a sin or in disobeying God's word or taking physical abuse. When the civil authorities told the apostles to stop preaching the Bible, they said, we must obey God rather than men. In Ephesians, when Paul says for children to obey their parents, he says, in the Lord. And that is true for the wife here as well. Um, you know, that she, uh, it's not an absolute obedience. If the husband tells her to do something Christ would, uh, that would violate her faith in Christ, she does not do it. Uh, he may uh, want her to join him in some kind of sexual sin, and she will say, no, I cannot do that. I love you, and I will, uh, you know, help you in any way, husband, but I uh, cannot uh, commit what is clearly sexual sin with you or for you or whatever, you know, all the crazy, uh, weird ways people commit sexual sin because I love Christ and I'm under his authority and I can't do that. I can't dishonor him. So um, please don't ask me. Don't put me in that position. And citizens say the same thing to their uh, pagan rulers. You know, let us be the best citizens. Let us serve. But don't ask us to violate our conscience. Don't make us give people abortions. Don't make us uh, steal. Don't make us lie. Uh, don't make us commit sins of the flesh. Uh, verses 3 and 4 are so relevant to us today. Do not let your adornment be outward, and we supply the word merely there. That's the force of the text. Don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair and all the expense that's put into that, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Uh, some of that's okay, but in moderation as in all things. Rather, let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart, the heart person with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And... Uh, one of the highest compliments a female or a male can be paid is that they're beautiful on the inside, not just beautiful on the out. Peter prioritizes inner beauty over outward beauty. Again, it's not wrong to paint the barn a little bit, but you need to give most thought to the quality of what's inside the barn. So much time and expense is spent on what we look like outwardly. So much emphasis is given to elaborate hairstyles, expensive jewelry, and fancy clothes. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this the week of Valentine's Day, should I? <laughs> but Peter may have been referring to something specifically done in those days. Listen to what the Archaeological Study Bible reports. Women in Peter's day would often braid their hair, interweaving it into golden spangles and threads that glittered and tinkled with every movement of the head. One ancient writer, Xenophon of Ephesus, described women with hair braided in such a way in a procession for the goddess Artemis as erotically attractive, erotically attractive. This was not to be the way of Christian women. A good word. Well, where should the emphasis be for the Christian wife on developing the heart person? That's the way the Greek reads, the heart person. The outward stuff says, look at me, but outward beauty fades. The inward beauty says, look at God, and grows more appealing as time passes. Mankind constantly makes superficial value judgments, and even men of God can do that. Uh, Samuel saw uh, Jesse's oldest son and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But it turned out it was the runt son, the youngest son of Jesse, David, who himself was a wiry, uh, red-headed uh, uh, shepherd uh, boy who could fight off lions and bears and was courageous as all get out. What a young man. 
But uh, God said to Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Peter speaks of this as having a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle is actually the word meek. Meek means strength, under control. Many of the things the Proverbs 31 woman exemplifies are this strength under control. Proverbs 31 is kind of neat because it's got the Proverbs 31 man in the first 10 verses. And then after that, 11 through, I think it's verse 31, has the Proverbs 31 woman. And she's a remarkable woman. Now, it doesn't say just quiet, but quiet spirit. There are both men and women who are obnoxiously loud and dominate a room. A quiet spirit person doesn't need to be putting the spotlight on herself or himself in a forced way like so many do. She knows if she's comfortable in her own skin, the spotlight will naturally and gracefully find her. And and it's going to embarrass her when it does. It's going to be awkward when it does because she wants the spotlight to be on Jesus. Uh, She often exemplifies, a godly woman often exemplifies the little acronym JOY. Jesus first, others second, yourself third. JOY. She uh, wants to put the spotlight on God, is comfortable highlighting the accomplishments of others, but uh, she has a quiet spirit. Verse 4 ends by saying these things are very valuable in God's eyes. Ladies, God is watching. And we're back to Colossians 3.23. Remember what it says? Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. (laughs) And I love that because that means as we go through our day-to-day duties, even life for a wife with a potentially difficult man, uh, life for a servant with a particularly hard boss, a worker for boss, children with parents, and vice versa, parents for children, husbands with wives, bosses with workers, uh, we're really doing what we do as an act of worship to the Lord. And... We're told of many different things that will be rewarded by God one day for believers. And here he says he will reward. uh, You'll get an inheritance from the Lord when you do your work enthusiastically for the Lord and not just for men. If we do it for men, it can become drudgerous and hard to uh, keep on keeping on. But when we do what we do for the Lord, uh, it adds a sparkle to our eyes and a, a sense of purpose to our steps. Fulfilling your marriage vows is an act of worship, even when your husband doesn't believe, even when your husband doesn't appreciate, even when your husband is inconsiderate. You can worship the Lord by fulfilling your part of the marriage vows, even when they're really uh, taking you for granted. We'll talk about husbands in a moment here, but marriage gives us lots of hard opportunities to practice the endurance aspects of our faith. Even in the best marriages, there's plenty to overcome because two sinners are living under the same roof. And, you know, we every day have to deny self and die to self, take up our cross and follow Jesus. And sometimes that's hard being out there in the world. We come home and then we let the ones closest to us, the ones we say we love the most, we let them have it. And that's very unfortunate. Remember, these things are in relationship to the Christian marriage. They should not be used to put down a Christian woman's personality. Let's look again at verses 5 and 6. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, I like those verses, and it reminds me when it talks about Sarah 
that Sarah wasn't the quietest person <laughs> in the record of Genesis. Uh, Sarah is often loud and confrontational with Abraham. The Bible shows us lots of different kinds of women, commending women with very different personalities, some louder than others, many successful business women. Uh, I think of uh, Phoebe that the Bible commends. She was a businesswoman selling uh, purple dyed items uh, in Philippi. She was actually uh, uh, from Thyatira um, and had come to Philippi uh, and was selling her wares and she saw that there was no place to prayer and so she gathered some other women and had them down by the river having a place of prayer. Paul spoke to those women when he came into Philippi. It was the uh, you know, he couldn't find a synagogue. It took 10 males, 10 heads of households to have a synagogue. So there obviously wasn't that there. Uh, Phoebe had uh, taken uh, the leadership to have a Bible study in the absence of that, a place of prayer. Paul spoke to the women and Phoebe was saved and no doubt used her uh, business, uh, money made it business to help advance the gospel. I think of Priscilla and Aquila that were told that Paul was companions with and fellow tent makers. They, uh, she was another marketplace woman and uh, it, it really appears as the text unfolds that she spoke more than her husband did. They both loved Jesus. They both had, they opened their home for church activity. Together they um, instructed um, the great silver-tongued Apollos, the great orator in the rest of the story. His theology was a little weak and they, instead of uh, uh, huffing and puffing, invited him to dinner and gave him the rest of the story, and he was a better man uh, because of it, a better preacher because of it. We've already mentioned the Proverbs 31 woman. She was clearly a woman working outside the home. She was working in and outside the home, and good for her. We think of Ruth, who was uh, very different, uh, a widow, a young widow, who was sporting her mother-in-law and went back to work, so to speak, out to the fields to bring food into the home and met and married her husband, uh, second husband that way. We think of Mary and Martha. Mary, who wanted to listen to go to Bible studies more than she wanted to get the home ready. And Jesus said uh, he, he loved both those ladies. And Martha was so frazzled with the details of the house that she criticized her sister, Mary. And uh, <laughs> Jesus loved them both. And he said, Martha, when it's time to hear from Jesus, uh, put everything else away, quiet your heart and hear from Jesus. And so don't criticize Mary for doing that. And <laughs> for who knows, perhaps later said Mary, uh, Martha cooked us that great meal. You do the dishes now. I don't know. Um, I think of the Old Testament Jael and Deborah, uh, Jael. Jael was the one. She was, what a woman that was, man. She drove a spike through a pagan's head uh, rather than let him do harm to God's people. Deborah was the leader no man would be at the time, and so she was the leader of the country at that time. And then there's Sarah. <laughs> and it makes us smile because we know that Abraham and Sarah were both very human and made mistakes as they followed God. But when God told Abraham to leave his land and go to the place that God had for his family, Sarah submitted and went with him. So even though she was a woman who spoke her mind uh, when the leadership uh, needed to be submitted to, she did it. And that uh, is why she's commended here by Peter. She goed, she growed, and she glowed. She was the mother uh, of Israel. If Abraham was the father, she was the mother. And God took care of any anxiety she had. Didymus the blind, back in the 300s, and he lived in Alexandria, he said, For just as a man who does the works of Abraham and has his faith becomes his child, so also believing women who do good have Sarah 
as their mother. Well, I like that. Well, okay. We've talked about the women. Verse 7, the God-given responsibilities of Christian husbands. Verse 7 simply says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. The God-given responsibilities of Christian husbands. So we are reminded of the words of Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Here's what John MacArthur said. Submission is the responsibility of the Christian husband as well. From Ephesians 5.21, though not submitting to his wife as the leader, a believing husband must submit to the loving duty of being sensitive to the needs, fears, and feelings of his wife. Hmm, that's good. 1 Peter 3.7 is Peter's version of Ephesians 5.25, and that verse that all men should have memorized is, Husbands, love your wives, just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Man, that is worth a lifetime of meditation as Christian husbands unselfishly serve their wives and families in Christ's likeness. Think about Christ for a moment. In Christ, there's a perfect blending of strength and tenderness. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so, what are the God-given responsibilities of a Christian husband, according to Peter, who himself was married? The first one is to protect your wife. Don't abuse her. Protect your wife. Don't abuse her. The first part of verse 7 says, Husbands are to live with their wives with understanding of their weaker nature. The word nature there is vessel, weaker vessels, weaker nature. And in the New Testament, it's another word for body. It only means one thing here. Most husbands are physically stronger than their wives. Um, Peter is referring to the physical reality here that most men are physically stronger than their wives. Of course, there are notable exceptions, maybe some in this room even, <laughs> or among those listening. But think about it. The average man in America weighs 191 pounds. The average woman weighs 164 the average Brazilian man weighs 160 pounds. The average woman there weighs 138. So even the law of averages in each country reinforces this idea. And any turkey anywhere that would say that means that men should think of themselves as stronger as a person than, and, and their wives as weaker uh, in intellect, in uh, how... Uh, valuable they are, etc. That's just all garbage because that's not what Peter says. In fact, all historically uh, cultures have treated women as inferior to men, and yet Peter here, these are among the first ones ever to say this, are calling for husbands to actually be considerate of their wives rather than turkeys toward their wives, to view them as uh, these great words that are here, joint heirs. Um, joint heirs of the grace of life, heirs together the grace of life giving honor to the wife. Hilary of Arles in the 400s said, Men must accept that they are stronger than their wives and therefore have a duty to protect them. So these words prohibit any abuse of the wife by the husband. And unfortunately, spousal abuse has been common throughout history and is even okay today in religions like Islam. And I think about the turkey words of first century Pharisees, Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. I think about some of our movies in America, like the John Wayne uh, being McClintock and showing a husband throwing his wife around. But 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Peter spoke against spousal abuse. And maybe this may be the first time anyone ever spoke out against it. 
And those words are the very words of God. They still speak out today. And if you've ever abused your wife, let me say shame on you. And you need to repent. You need to treat her with dignity and respect rather than not protecting her. G. J. Pokinghorn said, The gospel has proved the greatest force for the liberation of women that history has known, as may be verified by comparing their lot in countries influenced and uninfluenced by Christianity. Oh, that's good. Uh, think about uh, where all the, uh, all the, all the gain countries uh, where women have gained have a history of the Christian religion. Um, Galatians 3.28 that he references there, of course, says, In Christ Jesus there's neither male nor female, slave nor Greek, we're one in Christ Jesus, so we uh, are, um, have infinite value, everybody, because we're created in the image and likeness of God, male and female, are created in the image and likeness of God. We've got infinite value because of that and also because Jesus died for our sins, the sins of boys and girls and men and women. Well, the second responsibility that a husband has with his Christian wife is to grow together in Christ as equals. The second part of verse 7 says, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And so when a husband is considerate toward his wife, when he is honoring toward his wife, when he considers her a co-heir of the grace of life, she'll pray better for him than a woman who has to pray, Lord, help my husband understand what a turkey he is. <laughs> is that what some of that means? I think it is. Uh, your prayers are going to be hindered if you're always upset in the home and not working together as a team to be a lighthouse for your community and a, uh, a giver of uh, truth and life to the world. Um, J. Vernon McGee, McGee wrote this, The marriage relationship is not to be one of a man insisting on treating his wife like a little child who has to jump every time he says so. She is there to help him. She's there to be part of him. She's there to love him. And he is there to love and protect her. That is the ideal relationship in marriage. Inside every woman is a little girl who wants to be protected, valued, and loved. Inside every man is someone who wants to be encouraged, helped, and physically loved. And that will mean your prayers won't be hindered. Severus of Antioch, uh, <laughs> around five, the year 500, somewhere in there, said words, these words. He also shows them that there's another reason to be patient, which is so that their prayers will not be hindered. For nothing hinders the work of God like trouble in the home. But the pure and united marriage of a man and woman speeds on towards the gates of heaven. Ooh, isn't that a wonderful quote? That is so wonderful. Well, before I close, I want to ask you seven marriage inventory questions based on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. These are from the great, late great Warren Wearsby. Even though he's dead, he yet speaks. First question, are we partners or competitors? Let's be partners. Secondly, are we helping each other become more spiritual? I believe not only do we become one flesh, we should both be better individuals if our marriages are being done right. Three, are we depending on the externals or the eternals? <laughs> oh, that's good. Warren Wearsby, what a guy. The externals or the eternals, the artificial or the real. Number four, do we understand each other better? Has a husband made the effort to understand his wife and he's growing an understanding of her and she of him? Five, are we sensitive to each other's feelings and ideas or taking each other for granted? Ooh, Danny's got some work to do on that one before Valentine's Day. Six, are we seeing God answer our prayers? Mm, that's good. 
7. Are we enriched because of marriage or robbing each other of God's blessings? Ooh, man, that's good. Well, before I close, I want to read Article 18, The Family, from the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Here's what it says. God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. It is composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. It's God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and His church and to provide for the man and the woman in marriage the framework for intimate companionship, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards, and the means for procreation of the human race. The husband and wife are of equal worth before God since both are created in God's image. The marriage relationship models the way God relates to His people. A husband is as love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. She, being in the image of God, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. Children from the moment of conception are a blessing and heritage from the Lord. Parents are to demonstrate to their children God's pattern for marriage. Parents are to teach their children spiritual and moral values and to lead them through consistent lifestyle example and loving discipline to make choices based on biblical truth. Children are to honor and obey their parents. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Great passage to go along with Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. Emphasizing things that are true for Christians, male and female both, the heart person. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.